Welcome to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com, dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do. Serving leaders, managers, and people who will be, helping you reach excellence in your work and achieve your personal goals at the same time. Sign up for the free course at clearandopen.com. You don't write papers about all of what you don't know and what you're going to do to find out. Or what you learned that you thought you knew that wasn't true and how important that is. We're not trained to do that. We're trained to know, 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 know. Hi, it's Joseph, and thanks for tuning in to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com. You go to school. We're presented with a bunch of topics you know little to nothing about. Then over the course of about 12 years, teachers repeatedly shove information down your throat, evaluating you based on your ability to regurgitate it. 12 years later, you know things. At least you think so. You're taught that you can overcome just about any problem through this process of knowing. And you were lied to. In this four-part series, my goal is to help you undo some of this conditioning and start a practice of not knowing. But first, I want to share a story that will help illustrate the value of not knowing. I offer weekly member webcasts, online courses, and mentorship at clearandopen.com because it's my truth that with the right tools, anyone can eliminate the people, money, and time problems holding them back in business. And I share parts of these webcasts and courses on this show because I want to help you too. In fact, this series comes directly from the introduction to the course entitled Managing with Inquiry that's free for Clear and Open members. If you're enjoying the show and learning from it, I'd love your feedback. If you're listening to the show on an Apple device, all you have to do is open the podcast app, view the full description of this episode, and click the link to leave a rating and review for the show. Thanks so much for listening. Let's start the show. Welcome, everybody. Good to see all of you. Some new faces, some faces I haven't seen in a while. Very exciting, just taking all of you in here. Welcome to Managing with Inquiry. What is that? I have no idea. So I'm with you because we're going to discover together what this course is. I've been thinking about, I read an interview with, uh, so perhaps a little bit of, of a confession, but I'm proud to say I'm a big Fish fan, if you know the band with a PH. I saw my first show in 1991, so I'm an old schooler. And uh, one of the fish is easily arguable uh, as the probably the greatest improvisational band who plays today, maybe of all time. You could argue the Grateful Dead were better, but I'm a I'm I'm a fish fan. I'm a fish head, as they call us. And there's a fascinating thing about the way Fish plans their shows, and that is that they have a repertoire, a huge repertoire, over 600 songs. And so uh, Trey Anastasio, the lead singer and uh, guitarist for the band, has several pages with all of these songs listed on it, probably in alphabetical order. And about a day or two before the show, he just starts circling stuff that he feels like playing, that he just feels is in the groove and talks with other band members. Oh, I feel like playing this, feel like playing that. People he knows make requests. And he just starts circling. And by the time the show starts, uh, they, they've got, you know, probably 40 or 50 uh, songs circled, probably some crossed off. And so when they get on stage, they don't actually know what they're going to play. 
And in interviews, Trey will say that we can't actually decide what we're going to play until we feel the energy of the crowd. And I love that because anyone who plays music or performs in, in any kind of way will tell you that the energy of the audience is part of the experience. And to me, the, the more you're porous to that, the more any performer or teacher or whatever, the, the person on stage, as it were, the more open they are to that, the more they're included, which improves the quality of the thing. It becomes a relationship, becomes a, a dance. So it was really great to see that one of my greatest heroes, Trey Anastasio, that that's how he did things because that's how I've done things for a long time. And there's always been a voice in the back of my head that's like, you really should have a syllabus and you should know what you're doing. And I do, I have planned things like that. And when I do, I always throw the plans out. Um, because they're never as alive as what arises in the room. So that's just my style. And uh, I'm only about 20% embarrassed about it at this point. Mostly I like it. So that's a, I tell you that because I want to play music for you guys. And if you dance, it'll be a lot better. And what that means in this case is bring questions, bring frustrations, bring difficulties. Um, as many of you already know, I'm more than capable of filling 11 hours of space with interesting insights, stories, metaphysics, and all that. But that's not going to serve you as, uh, as well as it could. The same way fish could show up and everybody could be standing with their mouths shut and their hands in their pockets and they could play a great show. But it wouldn't be as great if it were different. So this is your course. This is for you. It really is. And you're, I'm going to do a lot of talking today because there's a lot of setup and guidelines and things to sort of uh, get out there that are necessary. But uh, after this session, I, I, would, I would love it if, at, if after we closed each of these sessions that it ended up I was doing a third of the talking, a half of the talking, somewhere around there, between a third and two thirds, but definitely not more than two thirds. And however it arises will be how it arises. You know, you, you're, in other words, another, one I will, another way I want to say it is be responsible for getting what you need. And this is related to uh, how we're conditioned in learning to be passive observers, passive receivers by all the schooling we got. So as students, we're all conditioned to just receive passively the information that is being given to us. And certainly you can learn a lot that way, but it's quite limited. And so that's not the way I like to teach because I want you to get the best, the most, the maximum. So related to that, I want to open with a story. It's uh, interesting timing that this course would start this week. I've been reflecting on how uh, I will have been coaching for 17 years in five days. This was the month that 17 years ago, I started working uh, at Emith, one of the companies that in the 1970s founded uh, pioneered business coaching. And I was 27 years old. I was uh, on, on track to be a career martial artist. That was really the only thing I cared about. And I'd moved to the West Coast to study martial arts. And my teachers, I uh, was studying Aikido at the time, they had a management consulting practice where they used the martial art of Aikido as a leadership model, which is not uncommon. There's a lot of Aikidoists who do that. You, know, you can use 
horseback riding, you can use ropes course, you can use lots of different things to teach leadership. And they were using principles of Aikido, centering, grounding, flowing, uh, all these kinds of principles. And lucky me, they would take uh, some of their students occasionally on their gigs. So they had people to throw around and do demos. So here I was, this 27-year-old kid, didn't know much of anything, had very very little relevant work experience. And I got to go on some of these corporate gigs where they were serving clients like Visa and the California Agricultural Leadership Program, you know, CEOs who were overseeing you know, thousands of people. Nextel was one of the clients. Monsanto was one of the clients back then, believe it or not. I don't know if it worked so well when we served them, but we tried. And I just fell in love with it. I thought it was the coolest thing because I got to walk around and be a helper. You know, I, I think I probably was, you know, I definitely didn't have a black belt in, in, in Aikido yet, but I got to push on executives and say, Oh, see what happens when, you know, take a breath and settle your weight. And what would it be like if an upset employee came at you and you did that and they would try it and it would work? And I thought, well, this is just the coolest thing. I want to be a management consultant. But I was 27 and didn't have any of the regular uh, relevant uh, work experience. So a couple of years uh, passed and I was a high-tech recruiter at the time. Long story how I fell into that, but I was a recruiter when the dot bomb happened of 2000. And the first uh, people to lose their jobs were the recruiters, right? Because I was working for Palm at the time. Remember Palm? Palm Pilots? That's who I was working for. There were 30 recruiters and we were doing a ton of hiring until suddenly we were all laid off and there was no hiring happening at all. And a few months later, the economy tanked and uh, we saw that that was the writing on the wall. So I was an out-of-work recruiter and, uh, and I was at an event and uh, it was happened to be talking to someone. I said, so what do you do? She said, I'm a business coach. I said, really? That's what I want to do. Are they hiring? And she said, yes. And uh, so I went, to, uh, that was how I got involved with uh, Emeth. And so uh, I went to the first interview. It was a group interview, which as many of you know, is the old school Emeth style, which I, I still think is a good one. And I sat around a big table like the best cleaners folks are, probably even bigger. And there were people far better dressed than I was, uh, older than I was. I was the youngest person in the room. And I also knew that that was not the only table that was interviewing for this position, that there were a number of these interviews. And someone, uh, one of the senior trainers there stood up in front of the uh, room and began presenting about the company and said, there are 200 people applying for two coaching positions. And immediately my first thought is, okay, well, I'm screwed. Uh, I've just wasted my time. I drove 45 minutes and, uh, and people went around the room introducing themselves. And this one was a vice president of a bank. And this one has been management consulting for 10 years. And I was like, this is, this is foolish. I don't think I even really heard a third of the presentation because I was regretting so much of uh, my, my plight. And this is yet another job I'm not going to get. And this is ridiculous. And then they did five-minute interviews afterwards. And some of you know the, the, the practice. They say they ask you things like, what uh, did you think was impossible in your life that you made possible? And uh, what do you think you can contribute here? You know, very short and high level. Imagine my surprise. I left completely crestfallen and sad and miserable. I'd been unemployed for probably two or three months at that point. Imagine my surprise when I was invited back for an actual interview. And I thought, well, you know, out of 200 people, this must be just some sort of formality. There's no way I'm going to get this job. 
Well, to make a long story a little bit shorter, uh, I was interviewed no less than seven times. And in the uh, penultimate interview, the sixth interview, I, I remember vividly not the content of what was talked about, but the feeling of it. I wish I could remember the content. But what I remember is they asked me questions and kept asking questions and kept asking questions until I got to this very deep, uneasy, uncomfortable place of having no clue. They pushed me to the edge of my ability to speak intelligently. And that was a really big part of my identity back then. That Joseph is someone who has stuff to say about anything, has answers, knows stuff. And they kept asking me questions until I had nothing to say. And I remember vividly how they didn't rescue me from that silence. They just, I remember saying, I don't know. And then it was quiet for like three or four years is how it felt. And the interview didn't last much longer than that, maybe a few more minutes. And then I remember vividly walking out to my car and crying a little bit on the way, fumbling with my keys, driving home, being sure I just lost this job. And what I would later find out a few months later after starting there was it was because that I was able to not know and stay in the discomfort of not knowing and really face the truth that I didn't know. I don't remember what it was. That was one of the reasons why I was hired. Now, this may seem strange to some of you. Some of you I know have been hanging around clear and open for a while. It probably doesn't. But this I want to offer is one of the most unappreciated and invisible capacities, because I even had it then as a capacity, um, not as a trained skill. But that not knowing is one of the least appreciated and most important qualities of being, um, capacities of, for a human being. And as you're going to learn in this course, it really is a skill. And it's tricky to even talk about because not knowing is not, I don't know, that's not knowing. That's, it's not when I say, when was the Magna Carta signed? You go, I don't know, that's not what I'm talking about. Even though I talk about the Magna Carta so much, some of you, most of you probably know when it was signed. I'm looking at you, Peter Morgan, I know you know when the Magna Carta was signed. So it's not that kind of not knowing. And you're going to learn in this course what kind of not knowing I'm talking about. And as a way to begin to illustrate this, the best way to talk about it is how, what it's not. And that is to realize that because of, and I'll, I'll speak broadly, you may be an exception, but for most of us, the kind of school, the education system that we went through dogmatically emphasizes the importance of knowing stuff. Information is shoved down our throats and then we're evaluated based on our ability to regurgitate that. I doubt anywhere in the course of your education did you raise your hand and say, I don't know, but this is a fascinating thing to think about. And then get pat on the head or get an A for the class. That doesn't happen. You don't write papers about all of what you don't know and what you're going to do to find out or what you learned that you thought you knew that wasn't true and how important that is. We're not trained to do that. We're trained to know, 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 know. And if you don't know, 
that's bad. And if you do know, that's good. And if someone calls on you and you don't know, oh boy, that's really bad. Right. And most of this conditioning goes into us long before we've got much of a head on our shoulders. Right. Our brains aren't even really structurally done forming until between 10 and 12. Prior to age seven or eight, you can take a glass of water like this and pour it into a tall, skinny glass of water. And you'll point at the tall glass of water and go, that's more water. The kid at age seven will do that. Prior to that, we're conditioned that knowing is better than not knowing. Instead of being conditioned into what I would offer as the greater truth is that knowing has its place and sometimes not knowing is the most important thing you can do. Because they're both equal, as it seems to me. But because of our conditioning that is so heavy on knowing, it makes not knowing even more important because it's the hardest thing that we don't know how to do. And yes, what I'm saying is you don't know how to not know. There's a really funny idea, isn't it? You don't know how to not know. You're not good at not knowing. And that's what we're going to talk about in this course. And the shift in being that can happen when you embrace not knowing, when you learn how to not know your way through things, when you're able to let go of stories you have about yourself, about other people, beliefs you have that aren't serving you, attitudes that you have that aren't helping, all of this is the domain of not knowing. And one of the reasons why not knowing is so difficult is because our identity forms around knowing precisely because of this conditioning. So we're taught that knowing is everything. And when you know, you get good grades. And when you get good grades, you're a good person. And all of that concretizes this kind of identity we have because you can't reveal the not knowing. That has to be hidden. All of us, I'm sure, have memories of being called upon in a class to answer a question and we didn't know. I remember some of those vividly, right? Humiliating. Why? Why is it humiliating to not know in front of a group of people? Only because the assumption is knowing is better than not knowing, right? Only because of that. Because, you know, It never happened probably for you in a class where the teacher called on you and said, what's the answer? And you said, I don't know. And the teacher said, terrific, let's talk about that. How is it that you don't know? Uh, Well, I didn't do the reading. Okay, wonderful, let's talk about that. How is it that you came to not do the reading? Well, I forgot to do it last night. Okay, cool. How did you forget? Well, I guess I didn't write it down. Okay. Do you typically not write your assignments down? No, some of them I write down, but I don't write all of them down. So you're trusting your mind then, the teacher says, to hold these kinds of commitments. I guess I am. All right. How well is that working? Well, it's not because I didn't do the reading for today. All right. So what have you learned? That I need to write down all my assignments. Terrific. A plus. Did that happen for any of you? Do you know how important a learning that is? Most adults are still figuring out not to hold commitments in their head, which is something you could have learned the first time you dropped a commitment in school. Right? How hard is that? What happens instead? 
Instead, I didn't do the reading. Uh Uh-huh. The teacher gets out the red pen, makes a note in the book. Everyone gives you these sidelong glances. And you're made to feel shame because you did something wrong. And what did you learn? Not really anything other than uh, do what you're supposed to do or else you'll be humiliated. How to actually do that, you haven't learned because it didn't go granular enough to actually find out how it is you didn't do the reading in the first place, which is you didn't write it down. So all you've learned is you need to do better. How to do better, you don't know. But if you continue to not do better, you're going to continue to be humiliated. Terrific, right? And that's our education system. How advanced. How advanced. And this is the culture in which we were all raised and often still operate in. Thanks for listening to Manage to Engage, the clear and open podcast. Join us next week when you'll be a little bit closer to who you're destined to be. Until then, know that Clear and Open is dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do. If you want to help the show grow, I'd appreciate you leaving a rating and review on iTunes. All you have to do is open the Apple Podcasts app, view the full description of the episode, and click the link to leave a rating and review. Or you can go to clearandopen.com slash review, and it will bring you to the right place. If you're looking for more support on your journey, head over to clearandopen.com for even more tools, articles, and free resources. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now.